what kind of theology would come to the forefront if we allowed the voices of those with mental health challenges to lead the discussion? For centuries, the mentally ill have been misunderstood and ostracized within religious communities. What would it mean to seriously transform how we view, discuss, and treat those struggling with mental illness as Christians? Today on The Distillery, our co-host Sherry Osting sits down with John Swinton, Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. In their conversation, they examine these questions and more as we discuss his new book, Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for talking with me today, John. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited to spend some time talking about your book, Finding Jesus in the Storm. Um, Well, it seems to me that the approach you took, which is a phenomenological approach, lends itself to really spending a lot of time in people's stories. Can you talk about that approach and why having what you what you name and identify as thick descriptions is so important as you try to tell other people's stories and share other people's perspectives. Yeah, so the, the, the book is based on a series of interviews. I interviewed over 60 people who live with um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. Uh, and the approach was, uh, the philosophical approach was, uh, to use uh, phenomenology. So phenomenology is a way of looking at the world that suggests that you can you need to put to one side your assumptions about what you think the thing that you're looking at is and try as best as you can to look at the thing in itself. So in the context of, of um, mental health challenges, uh, one thing would be to put to one side your assumption about what a, a diagnosis is and what somebody with a diagnosis should be be looking like should be behaving mm-hmm. uh, like put that to one side and really just listen to people's story uh, and my focus was on the spiritual lives of, of of christians in particular who are going through these sometimes fascinating sometimes very disturbing experiences and thinking well what where's god in that how do people maintain their spirituality when they hear voices or when they're in the deep lows of depression um uh, uh, and how can I l- and listen carefully to their experience without me thinking, well, probably he's thinking like this because he has schizophrenia or probably he's thinking like this because he has bipolar disorder. But as soon as you can put that to the one side, difficult as it is, you begin to see that there's a richness in people's experience and a, a deep, deep meaning that very often gets lost if we have thin descriptions that simply tell you something about some of the symptoms that somebody may have of a particular diagnosis. Whereas a rich and thick description talks about the person as a person, their experiences, their family, their community, the meaning of the mental health challenges that, that they, they have, you know, the meaning of voices, the meaning of feeling elated and, and, and really in deep contact with God in the midst of uh, you know, the, 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 the complexities of bipolar disorder. And so that's what I try to do. I try to capture something of of that meaning. Um, yeah. it's, it's difficult because how can you, you you need to know something to know something. So you can't bracket off completely, mm-hmm. but you can intentionally make sure that your own perspective, as far as you can do it, it doesn't impose upon the way that you're listening. Yeah, and you seem to put your finger on 
one of the real obstacles to this, um, there does seem to be less stigma now about mental health um, challenges in general. And yet with the rise of that as a diagnosis, it does kind of lend itself to a thin description if someone says they're depressed. Uh, people assume that they know exactly what that means. So you seem to be pushing back against um, the assumptions that we we understand each other's experiences with ease. That's right. And, and depression is a good example of the way in which certain experiences, mental health experiences, become um, normalized and neutralized because of the language we use. And so you and I might be feeling a bit fed up and we'll say, oh, I'm a bit depressed today, or you have the Monday morning blues or whatever it is. Uh, and you think that you know what depression is because you think, well, I feel like this, so probably it's this plus a bit more. But when you actually begin to listen to people who go through depression, it's something quite, quite different. You know, it's, it's more than sadness. We can, maybe we can identify with sadness, but it's, it's something, it's, it's beyond sadness. Yeah. A lot uh, of the folks it, you interviewed describe it as actually the, the lack of feeling. Can you, can you talk about sure. someone's story in particular, since we're talking about being more complex in particular, to, to share some of what you've learned from one of the people you interviewed? Yeah, well, I, 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 immediately what comes to mind is one um, uh, gentleman who talked to me about the experience of depression. Uh, and he, two things he said that were very important. One was that, it, as I said just now, it's not sadness. He said, you know, we think that, you know, that people sometimes think that because they've experienced sadness, they know what depression is. But he says, it's not that. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a lack of feeling. It's a lack of sadness. It's an emptiness. It's a, it's a, and he actually put it quite interestingly. He said, um, sometimes I long for sadness because uh, at least I, I can feel it and, and at least I can sense there may be a, a reason for it. Depression is something different. And he described depression as depression and sadness has gone along two different roads. Sadness is certainly there, but sadness is caused by depression. Depression is something different in that way. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> there's a kind of existential loneliness in that because the assumption of others is that actually I do understand your experience. And he, he was saying, actually, you absolutely don't understand the experience. You think that if you think that um, you use the expression feeling depressed, he says, it's anti feeling. It's feeling nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so so that, and that was very powerful for me because uh, it just helps you to see the way in which your assumptions can neutralize a very powerful experience. Like, I think I really know what it is, and you don't. You have to learn to know what it is. Yeah. And part of what, what you point out is the way in which the DSM-5, which is a handbook for diagnosing uh, mental health challenges, along with this kind of medical and biological understanding of health, gets in the way of of understanding. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say, obviously, is the book or me, I'm not in any sense anti-psychiatry. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very pro with mental health professions, and I think they're extremely important. And what I'm interested in is what does the church bring to the table that's mm -hmm. not necessarily available? And so this deep listening is, is one of these things. And the problem with the DSM uh, criterion is 
it's just that. It's a series of signs and symptoms which tell you something about what's going on with an individual. And they, they can help you to create a diagnosis which is very helpful and useful for the mental health professionals as they go about their um, uh, tasks of healing. So it's, it's not that it's inherently problematic, it's just thin. And if you take that as the only way of understanding what's going on with somebody else, then the temptation there is just to well we can medical we can medicate it so I can see your symptoms I can see what it is I have this medication I can give it to you and you'll feel better nothing wrong with that everybody wants to feel better mm -hmm. but these other di dimensions you know that sense of lostness that sense of spirituality losing the sense of who you are where you come from where you're going to why isn't necessarily taken as, as, as an essential part if we take if we take thin descriptions as the only way to look at things, uh, and even with you know, even with medication, even when you can control so-called symptoms, um, and I say so-called not because I don't think they exist. I think because I think they're, they're meaningful experiences rather than just technical terms. Mm -hmm. So even if you can control that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is healthy in the way that we might think about that theologically. <clears throat> to simply have your, your 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 symptoms under control doesn't necessarily bring uh, uh, you to that space of health that it might be biblical health if you like. So you really have two different models of health running together, both of which are necessary, absolutely necessary, but one of which tends to shout a little bit louder than the other one. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do in this book is to show a thicker description of health as well as a thicker description of the experience of mental health challenges. Yeah. At one, at one point, you used the phrase, I don't have a body when you were talking about the biological dimension of this. Um, but but in, in terms of being created, we, we are a body, yeah. um, which I found to be a really helpful reframing um, of, of what's often perceived as this disconnect between, well, if you have a biological problem, great, because we have medicine. But if you have a mental problem, there's something... Yeah. different going on yeah that's right and i think there's, there's two ways that you can look at that one uh, phenomenologically then within phenomenology you get this idea of the material body and the lived body so the material body is that but the, the, your biology you know your cells your neurons all of these things there which obviously becomes disrupted and, and have all sorts of difficulties as we go through life um but then you have the lived body which is that place where what happens when the material body enters into society, enters into relationships, enters into community, and all of the engagement that happens there, which is profoundly important and impactful upon the material body. So these two dimensions of the body are, are really, really important. And theologically, if you think about the way in which, think about the Genesis account of creation, you know, God doesn't create a brain. God creates Adam out of dust. He creates a whole person. And that whole person is body, mind, and soul inextricably intertwined in that sense, held together and held in existence by God's God's spirit, God's ruach. And so you you have a picture there of both the material body, which is significant, but also the way in which that material body engages with the world, engages with other people. It's not good that human beings should be alone. And so God creates partner. And so you see that these two dimensions of the body are, are actually inextricably intertwined. Sometimes we separate them. Of, uh, for, uh, one of the problems with modern medicine is it specialises, which is 
good at one level because if I've got a broken wrist, I want somebody who can look after my broken wrist. But if you are so specialised in your particular area, the idea that all of these different dimensions are, are significant for the work that you do is, is much more much more difficult to comprehend. So I think there is a tension within the way in which this, uh, medicine specialises in that way. Yeah, there seems to be a more. There's the possibility of something more integrated um, and whole when we think about who a person is yep. and who a person has been created to be. Let's talk about the Bible. (laughs) So you talk both about the Psalms and the way that Brueggemann, uh, and and I'm thinking in particular about um, within the framework of of major depression, um, you you lift up the Psalms as both um, a a source of of comfort and and companionship within the the sort of storm of major depression. And um, you identify that sometimes reading scripture can be really... Um, hard and problematic. So can can you talk about those two things? Yeah, well, first of all, in relation to the Psalms, uh, the Psalms of Lament, there's more Psalms of Lament than any other Psalm in the, in the Bible, mm-hmm. in form of Psalm. So God gives us a language to articulate our, our sadness. And interestingly, some of the some of the psalms were designed. Psalms of lament were designed for small group work with people who have been traumatized, where you can articulate the pain, but at the same time come back to God's hesed, God's unending love. Uh, but then again, you've got other psalms that don't resolve in God's uh, unending love. Psalm eighty-eight, for example, just stops dead. So there's something in there about using the psalms to articulate honestly our sadness but there's also something there about that sense of disconnection this i think is really important so psalm 80 is a a good example so darkness is my only companion Uh, the psalmist doesn't say that to nobody the psalmist says that to god so it's not a crisis of faith it's actually a sense of deep disconnection and very often for in relation to people with with depression depression that sense of being abandoned by God is is something that's profoundly disturbing. And it's not necessarily that somebody's lost their faith or should be praying harder, as as some people within the church have told, will tell other people to do. It's you've had that sense of disconnection. Now, the interesting thing about the psalm is that it it helps us to see that, that that disconnection doesn't mean that we are necessarily abandoned by God in that sense, but we still can feel that. You somehow haven't prayed hard enough. Exactly. That's a a huge mistake because it's not about that. And that sense, if you look at the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So even Jesus finds that, that sense of abandonment. So there's a spirituality of, um, disconnection that runs through a tradition. I mean, Isaiah talks the same thing about God hiding at certain points. You can see it running through there, that we don't really preach and teach. So when somebody has depression and has these difficult experiences, difficult spiritual experiences, they're not really oftentimes equipped to be able to see that this is not necessarily God totally abandoning them, even though it feels that way. So you you don't have that within that. And communities are often not necessarily fully equipped to be able to say, no, uh, it's not just something that you've done. It's something that just happens because of this is the way that depression works itself out. So I think the Psalms and these kind of 
more difficult experiences within Scripture where God at one level, at one point says, I'll never abandon you. And then Jesus says, you've abandoned me. So there is always that tension there. We should probably draw it out more so that when people experience depression, it's not alien. It's just part of that spirituality. It's a tension that we can live in rather than trying to resolve. Nicely put, yes. Yeah. So, so... On the one hand, we have these psalms that that give voice to a, a very real experience, mm-hmm. um, and you say that sometimes reading reading scripture for people in the midst of a serious mental health challenge can be really problematic. Yeah, for the same reason, because if if you know um, you can get so caught up in the, the difficulties of the psalms, so caught up on particular passages that you may maybe speak about um, eternal salvation or to speak about uh, separation from God, that it becomes unhealthy because you're just focusing on that again and again and again and again. Uh, and if you think about it this way, um, Paul tells us all scripture is God-breathed and it helps us to know and to understand who God is. So the primary purpose of scripture is for love. The primary purpose of scriptures is to help us to engage and stay engaged with God so that we can love God and love our neighbor and love ourselves. That's what it's that's what it that's what it's intended to, to do. You know, Jesus said that some of the prophets prophets is love God, love neighbor and ourself. If scripture's not functioning that way, if because somebody has a, you know a very serious uh, set of experience of mental health challenges in there, um and they're forced to continue to do this, or they, they, they maybe just choose to continue it. It's not necessarily the best thing to do. And sometimes, what is necessary is for somebody to put scripture to one side for a moment, and for others within the body of Christ to to read meditations to them, to to take pieces mm-hmm. of scripture that will be healing, and, and hold them in that space until they can come back, pick up the Bible, and read it in a way that uh, it fulfills its purposes which is to help people to to love God's self and neighbor. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, It's an image of how the community can exist as a whole for each other. That's right. It's the body of Christ. I think that this conversation about culture is a good moment to turn toward the topic of, of healing and the important distinction that you make between a, something that's healing and something that is a cure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, it's, I mean, it's quite fascinating, really. <clears throat> the, um, the, the ongoing conversation around what, is, what healing is about is always a tension within disability studies because mm-hmm. people tend to make healing the first port of call when they encounter... Uh, people with disabilities and people with disabilities are, are not at all happy with that mm-hmm. and so I've always had it in my mind that you know that, that there's something interesting about uh, about healing now the model of health that uh, underpins the book that we're talking about is based around the idea the concept of shalom so shalom at one level it means peace and we use it as a greeting sometimes like but it's a, it's a very deep peace it's peace with creation, peace with one another, no more warfare, peace with God. And the central dimension of, of it is um, uh, to be in right relationship with God. 
So to be healthy biblically is to be in right relationship with God. It's not to do with your psychological state or your physical state. Um, uh, it's, it's to do with your, your relationship with God. Uh, and I think when you think about that and then you begin to look at uh, the issue of healing, you see something you see something different. So if you take, for example, the, um, uh, the woman with the discharge of blood that, that we hear about in the gospel. So mm-hmm. she makes her way through the crowd. Now she has a, dis- a, 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 a discharge of blood, which makes it unclean. So she can't be part of the community. She can't be part of the religious community. Can't go to the temple. So she's alienated from God and she's alienated from community. And in that kind of community, you're, you're very personhood is dependent by being a part of the community. So she was an absolute non-person. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so she makes her way through the crowd, touches Jesus' cloak, and immediately she's cured. And, and Jesus notices this, and uh, they have this ongoing conversation. And then at the end of that uh, conversation, Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And you think, but she's already been cured. But... The way I read that is that her true healing came when she came to know Jesus. Her true mm. healing wasn't just the cure was great, but she could have been ill with something else the next day. The true healing came with Jesus. And she, he sends her back to community. And now she's back to community. She's able to be a person again. And she's able to be a person before God again. And so that's when the real healing, as Jesus put it, begins. And I think when we think about healing in that way, you can begin to see that um, when it comes to something like an enduring mental health challenge, like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, where you're always going to have it, according to a standard model of health, you're always going to be ill. Uh, And that's a difficult way to live your life. Um, But if we take this more shalom-like model, then it's possible to find health in the midst of illness. It's possible even in the midst of the complexities of the experience you're going through, it's possible to, to find uh, uh, the accompaniment of God. Uh, of course, that's uh, as we've talked about already, that's complicated. It's particularly complicated with something like depression. Um, but it does mean that the healing ministry of the church has a particularly strong focus, which is to help people in the midst of their difficulties, not to get rid of their difficulties. Of course, if, if people may well want to get rid of the difficulties. Mm-hmm. But the point is that uh, not to get rid of the difficulties, but to enable them to be with Jesus in the midst of it. And that's what the, I think, that's what, that's what the, the, uh, at least part of the healing ministry the church brings to the table that's just not available anywhere else. So I think there's a uniqueness there that's really important. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to think that someone could appear to be very healthy and, and well um, in a surface, you know, you could be a, a marathon runner who, um, and, and still be quite distant from God or very unwell in this in this broader sense of the abundant life to be found in Jesus. That's right. Um, and someone with a, with very chronic conditions can, of course, be full of abundant life. Yeah. Um, you oh, talk well, that, a lot about sounds... joy. Can you, which which seems dissonant a bit with this conversation, but explain <laughs> why it's not. Well. Uh... First of all, uh, if you look at the way in which the Apostle Paul lays out the gifts of the Spirit, Spirit he doesn't name happiness mm-hmm. as a gift of the Spirit, but he does Which name is a joy. much sought-after thing. <laughs> exactly. No, everybody wants to be happy. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not fruit of the Spirit. Happiness is an emotion that comes and goes, and it's, it's, it's dependent a lot on circumstance and feeling. 
Joy is something else. You know, <clears throat> uh, Paul talks about counter all joy. Jesus talks about finding joy. Joy is about, uh, similar to the idea of shalom, really. Joy is about um, being able to hold on to uh, that which is most significant for you, even in the midst of the, the, the profound difficulties that you are going through. So to have Jesus as your joy is to be able to recognize that there is a hopeful dynamic to the experience, even when you don't feel it, even when you, it's not necessarily making you happy, and even when you're going through difficulties and trials and sufferings, there's still that joy that's found in Jesus. But teasing apart, joy from happiness is tricky. So if I say to you, there's joy and suffering, uh, you'll think, well, you're telling me to be happy. I'm not telling you to be happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm telling you that uh, suffering is not uh, hopeless in that sense. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not meaningless in that sense because Jesus, our joy sustains us uh, or, or walks with us, even in the midst of that. So when we think about joy in that way, we kind of, it means that you can be in the midst of a, a worshipping community, you know, experiencing the real difficulties of depression, where everybody's telling you, you've got to be happy, you've got to be happy, and you can't be happy, but you can be joyful. And if you can't be joyful at that moment in time, your friends around you can be, can hold that joy for you. Yeah. So I, I think it just is a, it's, it's, it's slightly dissonant because we're used to thinking about joy as happiness. But when you kind of think about it, there's something important about it as a guiding principle. Yeah, a helpful analog, um, you point toward the work of Willie Jennings and yeah. um, his work around race and the way that, that joy can be present in the midst of things that are deeply troubling, almost as this kind of defiant hope. That's right. Um, I, I, mean, I, I actually, yeah, and Willie Jennings is very good in that. The, the, the whole uh, Yale School did a, a, a joy project um, some of which has been published, some of which is not. But Willie Jennings did an did a excellent paper on that, which was never published. But I think mm -hmm. you can still get it online. And I would advise people to have a look at it. It's a really interesting uh, perspective on, on joy. You talk about, as you conclude the book, it's a pretty short chapter on healing. Um, and we won't have time to talk through every every part of it. You've already talked a little bit about cultural healing, but I'm wondering if you could speak to just one or two other types of healing where you think that the church has a particular gift um, that could that could be developed when it comes to to the topic of mental health challenges. What what do you hope the church at her best could be when it comes to to healing and um, graciousness yeah. or I don't, I'm not sure what the right word is. No, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of ways you can think about healing, but I think one of the things to me would be liturgical healing mm. because worship is that space where we come before God with our brother, brothers and sisters and really um, cry out for strength, guidance, love, the, the ability to hold the community that we're told to, to hold together so it's a really powerful space for learning and for a lot of people it's that's the main place in a week if, you, if you're thinking about liturgy mm -hmm. simply as a as a, a, a space where they get their teaching where they get the, where they get the preaching now what i think is it's it's rare for um 
many of us to, to preach and teach on mental health. And it's rare for many of us to preach and teach thinking about the diversity of mental health needs that are in the congregation, which means preaching can be really difficult for you if you're going mm. through uh, some kind of deep difficulty. You know, even this thing we've been talking about happiness. If you if you're having a if you're having a teaching and preaching week after week, this really seems to equate happiness with faithfulness. Then that's going to be a problem for you, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also a problem for the congregation. So I think beginning to think about liturgical healing is important. I visited a, a church a couple of years ago in Vancouver, and the way that their preaching ministry works itself out is they. Uh, have a preaching team, uh, and every week the minister who or the person who's who's going to be preaching on that day preaches his sermon to the team, and then they give feedback and say it's good, bad, and different. One of the things that they are looking at doing is incorporating someone with a disability and someone with a mental health challenge into that discernment group, so that every Sunday, it's, uh, uh, the word that is preached is sensitive to the broad range of understandings that's available within the congregation. Mm. And their hope is that they have inclusive preaching. By that, by that I don't mean you, sh- you shave off the sharp edges in case you offend somebody. But you do realise that there are other interpretations of Scripture, other interpretations of the worship songs that we use that need to be taken into consideration. First of all, if we're going to be faithful to the task that's given us, which is to enable love in the world. And secondly, if we're going to be able to bring the people, the body of Christ, as they're gathered here, uh, into a space where they can really understand one another. So that's that's an aspect of, of healing I think is really important. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I had to laugh when I read the last paragraph of the book because you you spend hundreds of pages complexify, complexifying um, people's stories, and then you end with a sentence that says it's really not that complicated. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but you point toward, um, you use the phrase that the church could be a specialist in human kindness. Yeah. Um, but it's not complicated. It's complex, but not not complicated. I mean, Jesus says, "Love your neighbor." That's not complicated, but it's it's definitely complex. <laughs> and so, and so, um, yeah, I'm I'm happy with that ending. <laughs> John, thanks for taking the time today to oh, to talk about this. Yeah, good to talk to you. I'm grateful for it. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin-Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.